Good morning. I think I got the easy job. <laughs> My name is Melanie. Today's reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 and verse 20. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. That's 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting with verse 16. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of O Come, Let Us Adore Him. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Marcus, Mr. Marcus, as many of you call me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. We're writing some good energy in here following the Christmas pageant. Uh, can we get one more round of applause for children and adults for making that happen? It's a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, this Advent, we've been in a series we're calling Prepare Him Room. Each week, we've been looking at different metaphorical room in our lives, and we're considering how Jesus can meet us there in Advent. And this morning, we are going to the playroom. So last spring, uh, Caroline and I, we moved into an apartment with two bedrooms. One bedroom is the primary bedroom, and the other bedroom is a room that we didn't know what to do with. So when we first moved in, we called it the guest room, but that never quite felt right to us. So Caroline suggested that we started calling it the playroom. Her reasoning? Because playroom's just way more fun. Right? And she's right. When I hear the word playroom, I feel like a little flutter in my soul. Like, we have a playroom, and who, who doesn't like to play? Well, it, it turns out that we, Caroline and Marcus, we actually don't like to play. Uh, because even though we call it the playroom, it's just kind of become our junk room. Uh, so when we want something out of our way, put it in the playroom. When you don't want to think about something anymore, just throw it in the playroom. Have a nice piece of furniture that doesn't fit anywhere, but it's too nice to get rid of. Playroom. Uh, our playroom now looks like this. Uh, this is a real picture of our playroom taken from last week, unedited, no filter right here, uh, in all of its raw glory. So as a joke, we've actually started calling the playroom the garage uh, because it's, it's a long way to go before any playing is going to take place. So transitioning, what's the state of your playroom? Maybe you have a playroom. Maybe you have a room that you've hoped that was going to be used for fun or for recreation, but then just life just started happening. And the fun room, the recreation room, was the room that took the hit. You can see where I'm going here, right? I don't think that this state of affairs only belongs to our literal playrooms. This can also be said, maybe, for the state of play in our lives. 
When's the last time that you just played? When's the last time that you just played? Maybe let's start with a different question. What is play? And I was originally going to share a quote from a play researcher expert that I found on TED Talks uh, to define play, but there's no need because we have experts right here in the room with us, the Haverhill Commons kids, right? They're the experts. So we can tell a kid to just go play, and they somehow innately know what that means. They just know. So since they're here with us, we're going to ask them. So kids, this is a time in the sermon where I'm going to need you to shout out some thoughts and answers. When you go play, what is it that you go and do? Run around, have fun, go outside. What do we got, Elias? Wrestle. It's a good one. Soccer. Sports. Why, why do you play? It's fun. What a concept. It's fun. Yeah. What, what do you got, Jeremiah? Not chores. It's pretty deep. Yeah. It kills time. Now, final question. Do adults play? No. All right. I'm hearing a no, but maybe some, some debate happens. All right. So I think all these answers can kind of be summarized in this idea that play is basically something that you just go and enjoy doing just for the fun of it. And we adults, we are very good at finding reasons not to play. We are good at not knowing how to play. Frankly, we're too busy to play. Last week, Pastor Chrissy shared that sleep is often one of the first things that go when we're too busy, and I think play is right up there with it. Uh, Maybe some of us think that play is childish. It's not something that responsible adults get to do. Play is for those who lack purpose, who maybe even are a little bit lazy in life. Play is for those who need to fill time, right, not save time. And we adults, right, we, we like to go out. We, we like to have fun. We like to explore our hobbies. We do things that, that look like play. But even then, we sort of feel weird doing that. We feel guilty for doing something that's not considered productive. So we invent and we impose meaning onto these activities so that we can value our time and our play on the grounds of its usefulness. Right, so we don't, we don't go out with coworkers, we network. Right? We, don't, we don't go build something just for fun, we develop carpentry skills so that we can become a better homeowner. I don't read a book for fun, I'm actually digging for nuggets that I can use in my next sermon. I don't cook for fun, I'm practicing a recipe that I'm going to cook for my family in the holidays. I don't walk just for fun, I don't run just for fun, I exercise. I take the dog out. We can be so uncomfortable with the idea of doing something just for fun. Our efficient, purpose-driven minds communicate this truth to us sneakily. Just for fun, that's a waste of time. Just for fun is silly. Just for fun, that's not a good enough reason to do anything. Well, it's a good thing that the church teaches us differently, right? (laughs) It's a good thing that we Christians are really good at letting our hair down, letting loose, doing things just for fun. When Christians get together, we're known for our silliness. We're known for our low-pressure, chill, goofy atmosphere, wrong, right? Christians aren't really known for their sense of play. There's a famous quote from 1925 from journalist H.L. Mencken who wrote about Puritans. This is the title that he gave to Christians. So he says, Puritans are people who have a deep foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. (laughs) 
a deep foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. Uh, about 10 years ago, I read a book called Unchristian. Uh, the subtitle there was What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. The author surveyed students to help understand why they didn't want to attend church. The survey produced things that you'd probably expect to hear, right? Christian hypocrisy, judgmentalism, right? A general distrust of organized religion. But also near the top of the list was something else that has stuck with me for 10 years. Students didn't want to go to church because church was just boring. It's boring. When's the last time that you just played? Does play have a role in our lives? Does play even matter to us? I invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's the passage that Melanie read for us. Uh, this chapter captures a huge moment in Israelite history. It's a day that the Ark of the Covenant comes home to Jerusalem. So what was the Ark of the Covenant? Picture a box. It's about four feet by two feet by two feet box. Boxes carry things, right? So inside the Ark were three super special items to the Israelite history. We have the Ten Commandments. We have a jar of manna, the bread that God used to feed the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and Aaron's rod, the rod of the high priest. And so when David becomes king, David is determined to bring the ark with these items back to Jerusalem. He wants to symbolically connect his leadership to the ark. So when David comes into Jerusalem, when David takes the throne, the ark is going to be there with him. And he does it, right? He, David manages to bring the ark home all the way back to Jerusalem. The text goes at length to paint a picture of this huge celebration Harps, tambourines, cymbals. This was like a giant carnival. It was like a street fair mixed with a parade elements at points. A celebration to recognize the significance that the ark is coming home. A celebration that looks forward to David's rule into the future. Even David, the king, is in this procession. He's wearing priest's robes, dancing with all of his might. Everyone here is full of joy. Everyone that is except David's wife, Michael. For some reason, Michael isn't part of this celebration. Instead, she's looking down from her palace window. It's not because she's too shy. It's not because she's too sore from dancing the night before. Something nastier is taking place in Michael's heart. Michael is watching David and is full of contempt for him. Contempt, it's a nasty word. This is beyond just dislike for somebody. This is a deep, groaning disgust and hatred for somebody. David wraps up his festivities. He brings the ark into the special tent that they had prepared. He sacrifices offerings. He's out of breath from dancing. He turns around. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord. He sends everyone home with little favors from the celebration, bread, dates, raisins. I don't think I would want a raisin coming from a, from a wedding favor or anything, but there you go. Uh, the day was a huge success, right? The ark is back in Jerusalem. The party comes to a close, Cleanup crews take over, David walks home, and I imagine him exhausted, yet smiling, kind of giggly, as he excitedly comes back into the house, and then he sees Michael. And as soon as he sees a look on her face, his head drops, his smile fades, because Michael is glaring at him. Well, well, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked and full, of all this, in full view of all the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Well, well, here comes David, behaving like a child for all to see. Here comes my husband, wasting time, wasting energy, wasting money for a giant, pointless party. David, you are a king. 
You need to grow up, accept responsibility, start acting like a leader. You know, to Michael, David is supposed to be professional and appropriate and, and, and kingly, right? David is the leader of the Israelites. David is the leader of God's people. And God's people, they have to say no to having fun. God's people are supposed to act the part, to set an example for the world, to be reserved and not rock the boat too much. It doesn't matter if you think something's funny. It doesn't matter if you love that song. It doesn't matter if you really want to dance as the ark comes home. If you are good and you are a well-behaved Israelite and you are a well-behaved king, you need to grow up and you need to start acting like it. And I imagine David hearing what she's saying, assessing her heart, assessing his, kind of taking a moment, and the smile fading from his face. David's reply is serious and straight. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. In this moment, David can see how far back God has brought him all the way from shepherd to king. David knows that God is working right now to bring peace to the Israelites after an era of pain and hardship. David knows that the Lord is good. Therefore, says David, therefore I will dance. Therefore, I will celebrate. I will play. It's a heartbreaking moment. It fractures David and Michael's relationship. Uh, if we had time to read ahead in 2 Samuel, you'd see that their connection and that their intimacy and basically their marriage is going to end after this conversation. Michael's contempt just gets way too great to work through. And before we leap out of our seats to start throwing tomatoes at Michael, let's be real. Right? Michael is in us. Michael's voice, that's the voice of our inner critic, weighing and judging and critiquing the ways that we and other people play. And over time, as we age and we grow busy and as we struggle through the hardships in life and as we get weighed down, that inner critic's voice can become the only voice that we hear. We'll start believing that the playrooms, those, those aren't rooms for us. We are responsible adults. We've been through a lot. We need to keep the machine running so that others can go into the playroom before they get burdened by the weight of the world. Meanwhile, we continue chugging and chugging, maintaining control, accomplishing tasks, all the while our playroom gets dustier and messier. You know, there are tons, there is tons of research on why we should play. Studies show how play changes our brains. Play literally forms new neural pathways that encourage creativity and imagination. Studies show that play helps us navigate groups and new relationships. Play helps us walk through tragedies or through grief or through really hard seasons of life. Now, studies show that if we stop work and we go play, we actually will come back to work more productive, more innovative, even when we engage our coworkers there's a tons of research on why we should play, why we need to play. But do you see it? Do you notice what I just did here? Right there I am again, trying to sell the idea of play. Trying to tell you why you should do it, valuing play on the grounds of its usefulness. I'm trying to connect play back to health and to productivity. Our text gives us a new reason you know, David didn't play because it made him more productive or more relational, though it might have. He didn't play because it increased his survival instincts or lowered his serotonin, 
though it might have done those things. He didn't, he didn't play because it made him a more creative psalmist or harpist, though it might have done those things. No, David played because God is good. That's it. That's it. For David, that is enough reason to burst into joyful song, to dance, and to wonder. And that's the invitation to us this morning. To play, not because it's useful or productive or healthy, but simply to play because God is good. And play is a gift that we have to delight in that goodness. And don't get me wrong, there are moments to be serious, right? There are moments to mourn and to grieve and to cry and to fight and to be angry about injustice. Jesus takes those things very seriously. He took them seriously enough to die for them. But the gospel story is that sin and shame and death don't have the last word. Even though we wait for the world's healing to come, Christ even still offers us joy now that we get to experience now in the middle of our darkness. Play is a joyful response to God's faithfulness, one that doesn't have, doesn't have to have any purpose other than to express delight in God, to God in our lives. This is what we celebrate in Advent, that in the middle of darkness, Jesus came. Play is a profound statement to stand in the middle of our darkness and adversity and proclaim even still that God is in control, even when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel it. God is in control. God is faithful. God is good. And therefore, we will play. You know, when we start to cultivate a taste for it, I promise, like, we'll start seeing it everywhere. It's almost as if God is trying to remind us, hey, play, this is a gift. Play is all over scripture. We are commanded to rest, commanded to rest. We are commanded to take Sabbath, to eat gladly, to hold festivals, to sing, and to dance. Jesus himself attended loads of celebrations and dinner parties. Consider the fact that God's first miracle was replenishing the alcohol at a wedding. And how epic is that picture, right? I, it's so absurd, I just had to use it. Uh, <laughs> Jesus says that unless we become like little children, more like the kids in this room, we will never get into the kingdom of heaven. One of the best things about learning Greek and Hebrew in seminary is seeing how legitimately funny the Bible is at points. You can see it a bit in English here and there for sure, but it pops off the page when you see it in the original languages. The Bible sneaks in so many jokes, sneaks in these absurd stories. There's a bunch of winks to the listeners and to readers. There are so many puns and dad jokes in the Bible. Adam, looking at you. Play is all over nature. Uh, many of you know this about me, but I obsess over our cats. Um, this is Luke and Leah, and every morning, right around 7.30 in the morning or so, Luke and Leah have this play session. It's like clockwork. It's almost as if one of them looks at the clock and says, hey, time to play, meet you in the living room. So they come to the middle of the floor, right? One of them takes a little swipe at the other, and then they just go at it for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so. They'll run around the house, they'll tackle each other. Sometimes one of them will do a little fake out and act like they're done, but then immediately turn around and tackle the other at full speed. We sit there almost every day, and we just watch. It's embarrassing how many videos we have on our phones <laughs> of Luke and Leah playing. But there's something about them playing that just draws us in and hypnotizes us. And this past week, as I wrote this sermon, as I sat and I watched them, I imagine how God looks at us when we just do something for fun. 
God must be hypnotized by it. God must love it when we just stop and play. Play is all over community. We, we see it in one another. Here at Haverhill Commons, this is especially true. Play surrounds us. We have a ton of kids, and not all churches have this many kids. Kids, I'm talking to you right now, and I want you to hear me. You are one of our greatest gifts here. We are so, so thankful for you here. We want you here. We need you here. We need you to be fully yourselves in this space. You have joy. You have play. You remind the adults, and you teach us that we need joy in play, too. Adults, Next time a child looks up at you and asks if you can come play, consider that the voice of God might be in that. Mom, will you come play with me? Dad, will you come play with me? Church family member, come play with me. I imagine the father says the same things to us all the time. Hey, can you stop what you're doing right now and come play with me? God invites us to play for no other reason than that God is good. What does play look like for you? What do you really enjoy? What could you do this week or this Advent, this holiday season, just because it's fun? Even if it feels insignificant to do so, wrestle with these questions. Explore them. Engage them. Is there something that you used to love as a kid? Maybe it's a toy. Maybe it's an event. Maybe it's a location. Maybe it's an activity. It meant a lot to you, but eventually it just fell out of your life as you grew older. What is it about that thing? How can you engage it as an adult? You know, maybe growing up, you used to love movie nights, used to love game nights, but at a certain point, sitting down to do those things, amidst everything else you got to do, it just felt like a waste of time. Couples, put mistletoe up in your house, stand underneath it, and kiss. (laughs) Seriously, like just make out for 15 seconds. There is a ton of research that suggests that frequent kissing, especially in long-term marriages, correlates with relationship satisfaction and health. But despite all the research, what if we just kiss one another for no reason than just that God is good? Perhaps you make it a family goal to go sledding when we get our first big snowfall because God is good. Maybe you can invite your kids into the kitchen for a dance party, not to fill time, not to wear them out before they go to bed, but because God is good. Soak in imagination. Play, play Dungeons and Dragons and pretend that you're a dwarf barbarian ready to rush a castle because God is good. Next time you go on a hike, you're not, ex- you're not hiking for exercise. You're exploring an uncharted, faraway land because God is good. Read fiction. Give in to make-believe. Laugh at yourself when you look absurd or do something totally silly. People of God, play. If for no other reason, then it is a profound way to worship and trust that God is for us and with us and loves us. That's all the reason that we need to play. Let's pray.